God's peace to you this morning. It's a privilege to be here and a joy to worship uh, the Lord with you. Jason just prayed that uh, the Lord would expose to us any lies that are outside us and lies that are within us. And really, I think that's what we hope that will happen uh, whenever we, oh no, it came up already. I saw laughter. I was like, what am I saying that's funny? Um, uh, I uh, hope that that will uh, be true for us today. That there are any lies that we believe that will become uh, clear to us. Uh, so you've already seen the picture here, but I was going to tell you that uh, my brother Brad sent this to me this week. But uh, uh, we've been talking about Moses a lot, and uh, archaeologists think they've figured out what he looked like. So that, that's it. <laughs> Uh, you can't see it, it's a little bit off the screen there, but uh, uh, yeah, scientists now think they've figured out Moses' appearance. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Uh, for those of you who, who don't know or maybe didn't grow up in the time period I did, uh, that's Hulk Hogan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, today, I'll just take that off for a second. Um, <laughs> Today, we get to those wonderful building project chapters in the Bible that we all love. Uh, I know a thing or two about building, building projects now. Um, for those of you who don't know, we've recently added on a little bit to our house. Um, it's almost finished. Trace has done a wonderful job of uh, building on for us. And uh, as I've told some people previously... I'm really excited because I know when it's done, then I'll be truly happy. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Sometimes I, say, uh, sometimes I say dumb things in the hope that it will help you recognize dumb things uh, when you hear them or when you think them. <laughs> um, when I was a kid, I tried once or twice to build something like a shelter or a treehouse. And I learned something about myself. I shouldn't build things. That's what I learned. And uh, for some reason, God did not give me those gifts to, to build things. Nothing ever came together for me. So maybe it's a little bit harder for me than most people when we uh, come to uh, reading these, these kind of passages. But I think for most people, you get to these chapters, and this is pretty boring stuff. <laughs> and I, I don't feel bad about saying that. I know it's in the Bible, but it's boring. And uh, it, it can be real drudgery working your way through. I skim. I, I, don't, I don't feel bad for, for skimming uh, passages like this. Uh, and uh, we have actually 13 chapters of Exodus. Of the 40 chapters in Exodus, 13 of them are devoted to the building of the tabernacle. And uh, if you're wondering how we're going to get finished with Exodus... By the end of this month, or next month now, I guess, we're almost to February, it's because we're not going to spend a long time in these 13 chapters that make up 13 out of the next 15 or so uh, at the end of the book of Exodus. But we have to say, maybe there's something important about this. Maybe there's some reason that there are 13 chapters devoted to this story of the building of the tabernacle. Here, here at the end of Exodus, you have six, six or seven right here uh, before and then six or seven at the end where it basically it repeats a lot of the same stuff and says they did it. Do this, they did it. And in between that, Brother Terry's going to talk about this next week, you get this story about the golden calf. It's not insignificant the way the story has been put together. It's meant to tell us something about worship. 
And I'll leave that for Brother Terry to tease out for us uh, next week. But for, for now, we just want to know that probably this stuff matters. If you'll remember, we talked about back uh, right when we started the Exodus series, that there are three major movements, three, if you want to use the, the word salvific, related to salvation, salvific movements in the book of Exodus, three legs upon which salvation stands in the book of Exodus. One is deliverance and the narrative of deliverance from, from bondage that's there. The other is the law, the giving of the law so that people will know how to live. And now we get to the last one of those. The significant move is God is going to show the people how to worship. And not just that, he's going to show them that he's present among them. And that they worship him because he is present with them. And this is hugely significant, that God wants to dwell among us. And you know that we live in a world today where people have come to believe, even a lot of uh, people influenced by Christian society, if not Christians themselves, believing that it doesn't really matter if God is present. I went uh, a week or two ago with Philip. We went to a movie uh, together uh, called, uh, well, what was it called? <laughs> a Man Called Otto. There you go, yeah. A man, I knew the name was Otto. I couldn't remember what the movie was called. A Man Called Otto. It's a good movie, a beautiful uh, story of change. And, and I won't give the whole story away, but uh, Philip and I were discussing on the way home that it was a beauty, beautiful story, a story that really made you reflect and, and think deeply. And yet what we talked about as we, as we uh, reflected on the movie is that the whole story is presented as almost all of them are. Television shows and movies where the process of change happens totally detached from the God who made us. And the story is in Hollywood, on television, the story is you can flourish apart from God. And yet the biblical narrative is God wants to be with us. In fact, if we were just to take a moment and to reflect just as an aside on our society, what we have today in secular liberal society is a uh, holdover of Christian ethics that have lost their Christian context. They've been detached from the context in which they came. And so we have a lot of uh, understanding of some basic, uh, a, a, a general agreement on some basic ideas such as we should care for the poor and the weak. Human beings have equal dignity. We should love in a in way that's sacrificial and, and, and uh, has a certain Christian understanding to it. All of that has come to us from the Christian, the Judeo-Christian tradition and yet now what's happened is we wanted to keep those values but sever them from the context in which they came to us and we've said we can make it without you God thanks for the ethics though <laughs> but really we don't even give him thanks yeah. but we'll keep we'll keep living with forgiveness yeah we like that one but forget all the sexual stuff you told us <laughs> we definitely don't want that uh, and we don't really need you for any of this but see we've, we've kept the ideas that came through us to us through the Christian tradition. This is what the philosopher you may have heard of, Friedrich Nietzsche, was uh, objecting to so strongly. He realized what was happening. He was sort of a prophetic voice. And uh, he was maybe an atheist, but uh, he, he, I think he was advocating for this, but he realized where things were going. And he said, wait a second, you guys have, have cut God off, but you're trying to still live according to the values. That's not how this works. <laughs> and you may have heard of the death of God I believe that may have even come directly from Nietzsche, but uh, the, the idea is if God dies, these values die. That's what Nietzsche saw. 
And so we ought to all try to be supermen. We ought to try to grasp the world ourselves and take control and not be weak and humble and care for the weak. See, Nietzsche was pushing back against that because he saw what happens if you cut the context off. The, personal, the context in which that came to us was that the per, those ethics came to us was a, a personal God who loves us and has revealed himself to us. And the question is, how, how do people want to, how are they going to logically justify maintaining those kinds of ethics when they've lost the context that first gave them meaning? If you uh, read any Aristotle or Plato from years ago, they had a lot of good things to say. But one thing that you'll find in them is they said almost nothing about the poor. Even though their society was uh, built on slavery. There was nothing to say about the poor. Whereas if you read Jeremiah and Isaiah, people like that, and I think they were actually uh, maybe temporal contemporaries uh, in different parts of the world. They're very concerned about the poor. Right. You know what the difference was? Jeremiah and Isaiah had a story about God. They had a story about a, a, a creator who loved them and delivered them from slavery and poverty and those kind of things. And so they said, we've got to be concerned for those kind of things. So what I'm trying to say to you is that that was just really an aside to talk uh, about some things that may be culturally relevant to us and think, think about uh, Christian apologetics, if you want to call it that. Uh, we have to think about the relevance of, of God to our world and what that really means in a society that's lost vision of God. We, and, and I just want you to be aware and, and to come back to where I was just a minute ago. Be aware when you're watching TV or watching movies or whatever, the message that they're giving to you. And they may have some very good messages sometimes, but it will largely be, almost always be, that you can get these things without God. Don't buy it. That is not the message that's been delivered to us. The truly incredible thing is that God has said he wants to be with us. Let's open up to Exodus 25. This is where we pick up on our journey, last week, Brother Terry talked about Moses going up the mountain, going to meet with God. He went up on the mountain, the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on, the mountain, on Mount Sinai. That's the end of chapter 24. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. And Moses went up into it. And when he goes up in there, man... This would have been so disappointing to me. You go up there to meet with God, and he says, Now, here are the building instructions. <laughs> but that's me. You know, Bruce, he, Bruce would have loved it probably. <laughs> you know, lay it all out here. Okay, great. Yeah, I see all that. I, I can't see things like that. I just don't. I, don't. I don't visualize things, and that's part of my problem reading stuff like this. But if you get down to verse 8, the Lord says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Let me say to you right now, that, uh, uh, let you know right now, that we're not going to read all these detailed instructions here. Uh, instead, I'm going to summarize it for you. Uh, it's a little bit small there, uh, but I hope you can see it. Uh, if you wanted to just see a rough 
outline, a rough summary of the topics covered. This is, this is them through these uh, uh, 25 through, chapters 25 through 31. You get the ark and the mercy seat and the table and the bread of presence, the lampstand, all those things. And it, rather than, than going through them, I thought it might be more helpful, rather than going through them in the text, I thought it might be more helpful if we looked at the pictures. So here is a picture of the tabernacle. Of course, it doesn't have the tent over it. But it you know, it's showing you the insides, but it would be covered with a, with a tent. And uh, let me see if I can make this work here. No, I don't have a... Do I have a... No, the laser... There it is. Okay, good. Works on this side. Um, so, uh-oh, go back one here. Here we go. Uh, we have uh, this guy entering the, the tabernacle. This is kind of like a Sunday morning. Here's Bruce in there getting the chairs ready. Uh, Terry Kills getting the uh, slides ready and everything. <laughs> no, you have uh, a priest here. This is, this is the uh, main ark in the outer part of the tabernacle, the uh, outer court. And it's obviously the largest part where people can come in and mingle more. And on this bronze altar, the largest piece of furniture in the tabernacle, this is where they would burn daily sacrifices, a lamb in the morning, a lamb in the evening, other sacrifices that were, were brought. There was a fire continually burning there uh, throughout the year. And, uh, you know, let me just say this. We could talk about the significance, speculate about what the symbolism means on everything we talk about here. And we're not going to do that. We're going to move on. So, so just, just pause. And, and if in your mind it triggers something, then you can just uh, think about that with the Lord. But we're not going to take a lot of time to talk about all the significance of all these things. You move from, you move from here to the bronze basin where there was uh, water, where the priest could wash. And they would uh, uh, then be prepared to serve at the altar. They would cleanse themselves uh, in order to serve. And then you move on into the holy place and the most holy place. There are three dimensions. The bigger space, the outer court, the holy place, the most holy place. Let's zoom in a little bit there. And uh, here you have uh, Brother Gary welcoming people at the door. No, I'm, I'm kidding. That's uh, actually going to be Aaron, I think, or the high priest dressed in those garments. And uh, uh, you have the, the veil here, the curtain between the outer court and the holy place. Here's the, the table um, which, which, uh, on which you place the bread. It's called the bread of the presence. Now that's a significant idea because what has God said he wants to do? He wants to dwell with them. And here's the bread of the presence. The bread that represents the presence. Interesting that it's not devoured or eaten up. Like in some pagan uh, rituals, the idea was God, the gods they served needed food. This isn't the case here. Maybe intentionally put there to show that, they, that the true God of heaven does not need food, but it represents something. It's called the bread of the presence on this table. Here's the, the lampstand with the seven lights on it, perpetually burning. Uh, and uh, here's the, uh, the altar of incense. And where you would uh, have a, a special recipes to make, make incense and, and burn the incense there, a sweet smell that would come and, and, and mark the space with beauty. And then you get here to this veil here that is between the holy place and the most holy place. In here, all the priests could go. The regular people couldn't go, but the, the priests could go in here. 
This place, only the high priest could go. And only once a year. And there they would make sacrifices for themselves and for the people as a whole. You, you, you move in and you have the Ark of the Covenant. This uh, thing, you know how, how we've talked about that you, they were not allowed to make any image of God. It would debase him, demean the Lord if you made any image of him. But uh, they did have an Ark that represented it didn't look like any creature, but it represented the Lord being present. And on that ark, they placed a golden top that was called the mercy seat. I love that, I love that name for where God would sit, the mercy seat. And uh, the, priest could, the high priest only go in there once, once a year. And uh, um, this is, uh, I think this is actually from Indiana Jones. Um, but... Uh, the, the idea of the ark and the cherubim that were above it represented like a seat and a footstool for the Lord, something like that. It represented where he would sit. Now let me say something to you about the cherubim. They look a little bit angelic there. The cherubim were, were fearsome creatures. And they were guards. And they were threatening. And do you know the only place they show up prior to here in the Old Testament? It's the Garden of Eden. And do you remember when the cherubim come out in the Garden of Eden? It's when the people are, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. And God places cherubim there with flaming swords to say, you can't come back in. These were not sweet baby-faced angels. <laughs> These were fearsome creatures that guarded things. And I think it's highly significant now that we get these cherubim in the most holy place because God was present in Eden, right? God is saying, I want to be present with you again. And actually, uh, interpreters for, for a long time have noticed a number of parallels between the tabernacle and the creation story. And one of the ones that is uh, most significant is uh, the cherubim. And right here, you see that? That's the cherubim woven into the temple curtain itself, the, the most holy place curtain itself, they are representing to the people, this is God's presence, guarded by the cherubim. He is here with us. You also had uh, the priestly garments. That's kind of a funny looking picture to me. That's Aaron. And uh, all these different things you'll find in, this, in the chapters of 25 through 31. You got this right here, though, significant. Uh, where he put on these, uh, on these stones, 12 stones containing the 12 tribes of Israel on his chest. And then on the shoulders, you add those two stones, six tribes on, on uh, either represented six names of the six tribes uh, on each shoulder. And the idea was he bore the people into the presence of God. It was not just that the high priest could go into the presence of God, but the high priest went into the presence of God and he represented the people. And we've talked some about that before. Uh, he had on his forehead here this thing that said, Holy to the Lord. But it wasn't just that he was holy to the Lord. It's that all the people were holy to the Lord. And he was bearing them. Like we talked about how the people bear the name of Yahweh. You remember we talked about taking the Lord's name in vain? You don't bear, bear, the, you don't bear the Lord's name in vain? Right? Well, he was bearing the names of the people on his body before the Lord. Now, that's just to run through all those details for you. 
And I want to say this then about the significance. Why all this fuss? Why the gold? Why the ritual? Why the clothing detailed so carefully? What's the point of all that? Well, I want to venture a suggestion to you. That we may ask questions like that because we don't realize what a big deal it is that God has said he wants to dwell among us. We may even think, well, it's our right. He's just supposed to do that. God's supposed to just be here with us. No, this is an incredible gift that he's giving. And it should be recognized as something unique. Chapter 29 so we'll call out a few of the significant verses here. Chapter 29, verses 43 through 46, gives us a little bit of explanation. Talking about the tent of meeting, he says, There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. The glory of God sanctifying the place. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priest. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. That's what Philip read to us a moment ago. But I don't want you to miss what's happening here. The Lord is revealing himself to them in a new way. They had gone out into the wilderness to meet with the Lord at a mountain, right? And they had known that, that to really get close to him, you had to go all the way up to the top of that mountain, like Moses did, which they were actually afraid to do. Actually, you don't even touch the mountain. Right? They had an appointment that they kept. Leave Egypt, travel a long way, get to, the, get to the spot. Now there's a new development in the story. God says, I want to make myself known. Remember how we talked about that in the book of Exodus, uh, earlier in the book of Exodus, in the chapters we covered? It was about, they shall know that I am the Lord. They shall know that I am the Lord. Here he says, they shall know that I am the Lord. But there's a new revelation that's come to them. I am not just the Lord at the top of the mountain. I am the Lord in the midst of the camp. I am the Lord who's going to go with you wherever you are. This is amazing. This God who's been revealing himself. First, I'm a deliverer. I care about you and I'll deliver you. Next, I'm, I will teach you how to live. I'll give you a law. Wait, it's not over yet. I'll be with you. I'm going to go with you wherever you go. Pack up this tent take it with you and set it up in the next place I'll be there too this is a revelation of the living God his heart for his people coming through if you study much Christian theology you will come across fairly quickly uh, these two terms the imminence of God and the transcendence of God these are theological categories or, or terms that people use discussing God. The idea of imminence is that he's close. The idea of transcendence is that he's not close. <laughs> he's far beyond us. Those two things don't usually go together. It's paradoxical, right? You know why if, uh, if I call Wayne up on the phone, Wayne answers? Because Wayne is imminent. 
but he's not transcendent. Now, you see, if I try to call Vladimir Putin up on the phone, he's not going to answer. I'm not even going to find his number, right? Because he's transcendent. I'm not talking about his character, okay? I'm just talking about his position in the world, his status. Is, is so high beyond, beyond me. I can't get him on the phone, right? Most of the time, transcendent people are not also imminent. Now, I'd rather have Wayne than Vladimir Putin uh, all day long in terms of who he is, right? But in terms of just position in the world, that's why, that's why you can call me on the phone. I'm not transcendent. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm more available, <laughs> What the scriptures teach, what Christian theology has always maintained, is that God is both of those things. He is the most transcendent. And you see, they had already gotten that idea. Because they had watched him utterly rout all the gods of Egypt to lead them out from slavery into freedom. They knew he was transcendent. Right? They knew he could make a mountain shake. They knew he could light anything on fire he wanted to, even up in the sky. Boom. They knew he was transcendent. But they didn't yet understand that he was imminent. And that that had always been his purpose in creation. See, this takes us back to our Genesis study. When God made the earth, and when he created human beings, he said, I'm going to live there with you. It's sin that broke that whole thing. But the whole point of God's creation, he wanted to be close to people. And sin radically broke things. And ever since then, God's been on a fix-it mission. Step by step, he's been saying, I'm going to restore things. I'm going to come closer. Progressively, he didn't do it all at once. It was, a, it was going to take time to make this work like he wanted it to work. But he was going to restore things where he could dwell among his people. But you see, uh, God doesn't want to stay on top of the mountain. <laughs> he wants to come down here and be right with us. But if that happens, we have to understand who it is who's coming to be with us. Our God is a consuming fire. And we have to be aware of the wrong kind of familiarity with him. We have a relationship with God, but it's not like any other relationship we have. It is a relationship where we recognize we are with one who is transcendent. Who is above and beyond us in every way imaginable. We do not compare in any way. The best person we know is not in any way a rival for him. He is so far beyond and above us. And that is why I believe we have all these rituals and all these signs and symbols at the tabernacle. They were to communicate something, and there's a key word. If you look at it, these chapters, you'll see it in multiple places. It's the word holy. Do you know what the word holy means? Set apart. Did somebody say that? Yeah, yeah. Set apart. But not just set apart. I mean, these chairs are set apart from those chairs, right? That doesn't mean these people are holy and those aren't. Or these chairs are holy and those aren't. Set apart, I think we want to say something like set apart for sacred use. 
set apart, when you're talking about things, set apart for association with the divine. This is God. Of course, God just is set apart as the divine. He is holy. He is not like anyone or anything else. That's why you have clothing that you put on special that they had back then to signify to them something's different about this. You don't just walk into his presence like anybody else's presence. That's why you had stuff like that (laughs) to say to the people. Some of it's cultural. Some of it is a time-bound thing. But within that time and culture, they found a very good way through the revelation of God to say, let's recognize that God is other than we are. Do you know why you have to do that? If God is going to come close to us, and still be who he is, he has to help us to understand who he is. Otherwise, we can't worship. Because you know what worship involves? Worship involves reverence, wonder, awe. You see, if you think God is just like other people, just a little bit better. Your God is going to be too small to worship. We have to back away and and somehow uh, imagine and believe in the transcendence of God. Because it's only a vision of Him and His transcendence that will actually motivate our hearts to worship. And it's through worship that we become who we're meant to be. People who know Him and love Him. We have to recognize that he is not like us. He is not small. Not only that, he's not like anything that we have ever encountered, no matter how amazing it has been. And you see, the scriptures even say that he, in a way, he's scary. And if you don't know that, the scriptures teach you don't really know anything. You know that? The scriptures say that pretty explicitly. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You haven't gotten started knowing anything until you know God is so utterly beyond you that you might die if you get close to him. Now you get past the fear. But you start with that. And you learn who it is you're loving and who it is who loves you that leads you past that fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's why you have these passages about getting close and you might die. It's talking about the priest wearing bells, Aaron wearing bells. When he goes into the, when he goes into the most holy place, Verse 35 says, And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard. And when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. Wow. Now, now the bells might signify, uh, or it might relate to back in that day, you never walked into a king's presence unannounced. No matter how close you were, no matter how high-ranking you were, you didn't just walk in there like, Hey, what's up, dude? Not what you did with the king, right? So the bells announce... The presence, that may be part of their significance here. 
in Exodus 20, uh, I think that should say 30 and 20, not 20, 30. Uh, when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, uh, the priest, to burn a, a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. And another passage in Leviticus uh, talks about them bringing incense into the presence of, the, of uh, the most, I think this is Aaron going to the most holy place, bringing incense and sort of burning it and it provides kind of a cloud so that he doesn't die. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll find that there are multiple people who encounter God and they think, I'm going to die. Or they'll be done afterwards and be like, I'm still alive. <laughs> well, because they knew to get close to God was not something you did casually. They understood the transcendence of God. How does that work though? This God, if you get close to him, you might die. He also says, I want to get close to you. That's attention, isn't it? It's a paradox for us. I can't imagine how you would feel if I said, hey, I'd like for you to come over to dinner to my place. Only problem is I might kill you. <laughs> I, I, don't think I, I think I'll pass. Don't think I'll come to that. Right? But see, God doesn't want to kill people. He wants them to know who he is. And that knowledge enables worship. And that worship enables us to flourish as human beings. And enables us to become who God wants us to be. We must beware of the wrong kind of familiarity with God. We're in a relationship with God, but it's not like any other relationship. We are taught to pray. Jason, thank you for leading that prayer for us. The Lord's Prayer, the first thing he told us to do, pray that the name of God will be hallowed. Pray that the name of God will be set apart. Pray that people will stop treating God's name like everything else and everybody else. Pray that people will stop being casual with the revelation of the God of heaven. Hallowed be your name. May people come to recognize who this God is. And come to know him in light of his revelation to us. It's worth considering whether our corporate worship is appropriately reminding us of the sacredness of God, of his otherness. And I say this not to be critical of anyone, but just uh, sometimes it seems like there's a race in evangelical churches to see if we can out-casual each other. <laughs> we need to get out of that race. Because God is imminent, he's our friend. And listen, all the dead ritualism and formalism that we've moved away from, praise God, that's not good. But we do need to recognize who it is we're invoking when we come together. And there needs to be a sense of majesty and awe in our hearts, represented in our bodies, represented in our words. Where we say, this is not any ordinary relationship. We come together to recognize that God is so, so far above us. My friend Billy Abraham wrote some things on this that I was reading this weekend. 
and I want to share with you. He's talking about how people have different designer gods. And you have to, you can kind of hear his sense of humor in this because he's, he's writing in a little bit of a, with a little bit of flair, I guess. But it's really good. He said, this tragedy, the designer God tragedy, people make God what they want him to be, is sometimes borne out by our worship, given the Santa Claus deity of crucial sectors of popular religion, given this gummy bear deity, people literally saunter into church and lounge around. There is no sense of awe or fear. There is no sense of deep reverence. There isn't even any love. Now that may strike you as a strange or maybe a little bit of an extreme statement, but I want, to, I want you to sit with that for a little bit. Because if we're not willing to know God as he is, to recognize him as he is, it will impact our love for him. God is like a grandma. She is to be tolerated in a kindly sort of way. After all, there might be something in the will. And there's always the insurance money to fall back on. In this instance, worship smells of pious sentimentality. Hence, people come looking for bread and are given candy. They come looking for wine and are given stale, fizzy lemonade. And I want you to hear, it's a little bit further on. Billy goes on to uh, contrast these designer gods with the God of Exodus. It's not a book on Exodus, but it's in systematic theology. And it's the God of Exodus. And if I had more time, I would have read all that to you. But I want you to hear where he, where he arrives after working through the God of Exodus being this majestic, incredible being who's presented to us in Exodus. And he says this, In contrast to these designer gods, these caricatures, the church has to hand in her canonical heritage, the heritage of the church passed down to us, a vision of God that can heal our souls. And drive out the weather-beaten deities of the academy and the culture. That's what we want, brothers and sisters. To see God as he is in a way that can heal our souls. We need to know this great, great God. The incredible thing about this God is that he wants to be with us. And if we do not recognize his transcendence, we will not appreciate his eminence. And we will not understand what a great act of love it is that he says, I want to be with you. You see, you get this, uh, this in idea made most explicit and most clear in the incarnation of Jesus. And, uh, um, well, this thing's frozen up on me. But that's fine. You can just leave that. We're, we're, I'm done with my slides. Uh, the idea that you get in John chapter 1, Jesus coming among us, Wanting to be with us, Daniel has quoted this passage for us a couple of times in, in uh, recent weeks. One of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament, but there's more to it than we even realize sometimes. Because you know what John says about Jesus? He's being very intentional in what he says. He says, the word, the logos, that eternal principle that the Greeks talked about, it's actually a person. <laughs> it's actually a person. And this word became flesh and dwelled among us. It doesn't just say dwelled, though. You know what the word he says is? He tabernacled among us. And John's being very intentional in choosing that terminology. He's saying Jesus came and he was the tabernacle of God right here among us. You know what the next line is after that? If you know it, shout it out. We've seen his glory. Yeah, I knew you knew it. <laughs> we have seen his glory. 
the glory of the tabernacle we were just talking about, the glory of God that descended upon the tabernacle. Jesus comes and tabernacles amongst us. And we have seen the glory in the most holy place. The most holy place that was restricted to all but the high priest came among us. The most holy person who made that place holy came among us. I'm here. I'm right here. We cannot become over-familiar with this great act of love. I've been thinking about the kids' prayer a little bit lately. God is great. God is good. You know those are different things? And sometimes we want to believe in the goodness of God, as we should. It's one of the passions of my life, to preach the goodness of God. But I want to say again, we cannot appreciate the goodness of God unless we know the greatness of God. God is great and God is good. Jesus came among us and said, this God wants to be close to you in a way you cannot imagine. But, but beware of overfamiliarity. There was a time when Peter was with Jesus and suddenly he realized who Jesus was. You remember this story? I think it's Luke chapter 5. There's a fishing incident and Jesus reveals his miraculous power and suddenly Peter saw it. And he realized, uh-oh, I'm too close. <laughs> and he fell on his knees. And he said, Lord, you got to get away from me. <laughs> you got to get away from me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus didn't say he needed to get away from him. But he also didn't say you don't need to be on your knees. <laughs> There's this one part of the chosen. I love the chosen. You guys know that I've talked about it here before. One part of the chosen uh, that they got wrong. I'm sure there are other parts they got wrong too, but this one struck me. It's Jesus. They, they're, they're telling the story of Nicodemus. And suddenly, as, as, as Jesus, they're, you know, they're imagining what happened with the, using biblical language, mixing it with imagining what happened. And as Jesus reveals himself to Nicodemus, Nicodemus suddenly realizes who Jesus is. And Nicodemus falls on his knees before Jesus. And you know what they had Jesus say right there? He's being very kind to him. And he said, oh, you don't have to do that. That's nowhere in the Bible. Nicodemus needed to be on his knees. And any person who really understands who Jesus is will know that they need to be on their knees before him. God has come near and he has tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it's in light of this great and glorious God that we are able to receive an unfathomable love. How could this ever be that this God would say, I'm going to come and be with you? And you come close to me. Now, I don't have time to get into all this, okay? But we've totally neglected to talk about the sacrificial system and what it meant. But let me just say this. Our sins had to be dealt with. And they have been dealt with. And the invitation is full and free for everyone who wants to come close. Yes, if we're just aware of our sinfulness, we'll be like Peter and say, Get away from us, Lord. We're too close to the tabernacle. We're too close to the holy place. We shouldn't be here. But if God has dealt with our sins, 
then we can come close. And you can come close today. I invite you to recognize the greatness and the goodness of the God who has saved us. Amen.